Chapter Ten of the Prairie by James Fenimore Cooper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Peck. Go apart, Adam, and thou shalt hear how he will shake me up, as you like it. It is well known that even long before the immense regions of Louisiana changed their masters for the second, and, as it is to be hoped, for the last time, its unguarded territory was by no means safe from the inroads of white adventures. The semi-barbarous hunters from the Canadas, the same description of population, a little more enlightened, from the states, and the Matisse, or half-breeds, who claimed to be ranked in the class of white men, were scattered among the different Indian tribes, or glean a scanty livelihood in solitude, amid the haunts of the beaver and the bison, or to adopt the popular nomenclature of the country of the buffalo. Footnote. In addition to the scientific distinctions which mark the two species, it may be added, with due deference to Dr. Battius, that a much more important particular is the fact that while the former of these animals is delicious and nourishing food, the latter is scarcely edible. It was, therefore, no unusual thing for strangers to encounter each other in the endless wastes of the West. By signs, which an unpracticed eye would pass unobserved, these borderers knew when one of his fellows was in his vicinity, and he avoided or approached the intruder as best comported with his feelings or his interest. Generally, these interviews were pacific, for the whites had a common enemy to dread, in the ancient and perhaps more lawful occupants of the country. But instances were not rare, in which jealousy and cupidity has caused them to terminate in scenes of the most violent and ruthless treachery. The meeting of two hunters on the American desert, as we find it convenient sometimes to call this region, was consequently somewhat in the suspicious and weary manner in which two vessels draw together in the sea that is known to be infested with pirates. While neither party is willing to betray its weakness by exhibiting distrust, neither is disposed to commit itself by any acts of confidence from which it may be difficult to recede. Such was, in some degree, the character of the present interview. The stranger drew nigh deliberately, keeping his eyes steadily fastened on the movements of the other party, while he purposely created little difficulties to impede an approach which might prove too hasty. On the other hand, Paul stood playing with the lock of his rifle, too proud to let it appear that three men could manifest any apprehension of a solitary individual, and yet too prudent to omit entirely the customary precautions. The principal reason of the marked difference which the two legitimate proprietors of the banquet made in the receptions of their guests was to be explained by the entire difference which existed in their respective appearances. While the exterior of the naturalist was decidedly pacific, not to say abstracted, that of the newcomer was distinguished by an air of vigor, and a front and step which it would not have been difficult to have at once pronounced to be military. He wore a forge cap of fine blue cloth, from which depended a soiled tassel in gold, and which was nearly buried in a mass of exuberant, curling, jet-black hair. Around his throat he had negligently fastened a stock of black silk. His body was enveloped in a hunting shirt of dark green, trimmed with the yellow fringes and ornaments that were sometimes seen among the border troops of the Confederacy. Beneath this, however, were visible the collar and lapels of a jacket similar in color and cloth to the cap. 
His lower limbs were protected by buckskin leggings, and his feet by the ordinary Indian moccasins. A richly ornamented and exceedingly dangerous straight dirk was stuck in a sash of red silk network. Another girdle, or rather belt, of uncolored leather, contained a pair of the smallest-sized pistols in holsters nicely made to fit, and across his shoulder was thrown a short, heavy military rifle, its horn and pouch occupying the usual places beneath his arms. At his back he bore a knapsack, marked by the well-known initials that have since gained for the government of the United States the good-humored and quaint appellation of Uncle Sam. "'I come in amity,' the stranger said, like one too much accustomed to the sight of arms, to be startled at the ludicrously belligerent attitude which Dr. Battius had seen fit to assume. "'I come as a friend, and am one whose pursuits and wishes will not at all interfere with your own.' "'Harky, stranger!' said Paul Hover bluntly. Do you understand lining a bee from this open place into a wood distant perhaps a dozen miles? The bee as a bird I have never been compelled to seek, returned the other laughing, though I have, too, been something of a fowler in my time. I thought as much, exclaimed Paul, thrusting forth his hand frankly, and with the true freedom of manner that marks an American border. Let us cross our fingers. You and I will never quarrel about the comb, since you set so little store by the honey. And now, if your stomach has an empty corner, and you know how to relish a genuine dewdrop when it falls into your very mouth, there lies the exact morsel to put into it. Try it, stranger, and having tried it, if you don't call it as snug as a fit, as you may have sense, how long are you from the settlement's prey? Tis many weeks, and I fear it may be you had many more before I can return. I will, however, gladly profit by your invitation for I have fasted since the rising of yesterday's sun, and I know too well the merits of a bison's bump to reject the food. Ah, you're acquainted with the dish? Well, therein you have the advantage of me in setting out, though I think I may say we could now start on equal ground. I should be the happiest fellow between Kentucky and the Rocky Mountains if I had a snug cabin near some old wood that was filled with hollow trees, just such a hump every day as that of for dinner, a load of fresh straw for hives, and little L— "'Little what?' demanded the stranger, evidently amused with the communicative and frank disposition of the bee-hunter. "'Something that I shall have one day, and which concerns nobody so much as myself,' returned Paul, picking the flint of his rifle, and beginning very cavalierly to whistle an air well known in the waters of the Mississippi. During this preliminary discourse the stranger had taken his seat by the side of the hump, and was already making a serious inroad on its relics. Dr. Battius, however, watched his movements with a jealousy— still more striking than the cordial reception which the open-hearted Paul had just exhibited. But the doubts, or rather apprehensions, of the naturalist were of a character altogether different from the confidence of the bee-hunter. He had been struck with the stranger's using the legitimate instead of the perverted name of the animal off which he was making his repast, and as he had been among the foremost himself to profit by the removal of the impediments which the policy of Spain had placed in the way of all explorers, of her transatlantic dominions, whether bent on the purposes of commerce, or, like himself, on the more laudable pursuits of science, he had a sufficiency of everyday philosophy to feel that the same motives which had so powerfully urged himself to his present undertaking might produce a like result on the mind of some other student of nature. Here, then, was the prospect of an alarming rivalry, which bade fair to strip him of at least a moiety of the just rewards of all his labors, privations, and dangers. 
Under these views of his character, therefore, it is not at all surprising that the native meekness of the naturalist's disposition was a little disturbed, and that he watched the proceedings of the other with such a degree of vigilance as he believed best suited to detect his sinister designs. "'This is truly a delicious repast,' observed the unconscious young stranger, for both young and handsome he was fairly entitled to be considered. "'Either hunger has given a peculiar relish to the viand, or the bison may lay claim to the finest of the ox family.' "'Naturalists, sir, are apt, when they speak familiarly, to give the cow the credit of the genus,' said Dr. Battius, swelling with secret distrust, and clearing his throat before speaking, much in the manner that a duelist examines the point of the weapon he is about to plunge into the body of his foe. "'The figure is more perfect, as the boss, meaning the ox, is unable to perpetuate his kind, and the boss, in its most extended meaning, or vaca, is altogether the nobler animal of the two. The doctor uttered this opinion with a certain air, that he intended should express his readiness to come at once to any of the numerous points of difference which he doubted not existed between them, and he now awaited the blow of his antagonist, intending that his next thrust should be still more vigorous. But the young stranger appeared much better disposed to partake of the good cheer, with which he had been so providentially provided, than to take up the cudgels of argument on this or on any other of the knotty points which are so apt to furnish the lovers of science with the materials of a mental joust. "'I dare say you are very right, sir,' he replied, with a most provoking indifference to the importance of the points he conceded. "'I dare say you are quite right, and that vaca would have been the better word.' "'Pardon me, sir, you are giving a very wrong construction to my language, if you suppose I include, without many and particular qualifications, the bibulus americanus in the family of the vaca.' For, as you well know, sir, or as I presume, I should say, doctor, you have the medical diploma, no doubt. You give me credit for an honor I cannot claim, interrupted the other. An undergraduate? Or perhaps your degrees have been taken in some other of the liberal sciences? Still wrong, I do assure you. Surely, young man, you have not entered on this important, I may say this awful service, without some evidence of your fitness for the task, some commission by which you can assert an authority to proceed or by which you may claim an affinity and a communion with your fellow-workers in the same beneficent pursuits. "'I know not by what means or for what purposes you have made yourself master of my objects,' exclaimed the youth, reddening and rising with a quickness, which manifested how little he regarded the grosser appetites, when a subject nearer his heart was approached. "'Still, sir, your language is incomprehensible. That pursuit, which in another might perhaps be justly called beneficent, is in me a dear and cherished duty. Though why a commission should be demanded or needed is, I confess, no less a subject of surprise. It is customary to be provided with such a document, returned the doctor gravely, and on all suitable occasions to produce it, in order that congenial and friendly minds may, at once, reject unworthy suspicions, and stepping over what may be called the elements of discourse, come at once to those points which are desiderata to both. It is a strange request, the youth muttered, turning his frowning eye from one to the other, as if examining the characters of his companions, with a view to weigh their physical powers. Then, putting his hand into his bosom, he drew forth a small box, and extending it with an air of dignity towards the doctor, he continued, You will find by this, sir, that I have some right to travel in a country which is now the property of the American states. What have we here? exclaimed the naturalist, opening the folds of a large parchment. Why, this is the sign manual of the philosopher Jefferson, the seal of state, 
countersigned by the Minister of War. Why, this is a commission creating Duncan Uncas Middleton, a captain of artillery. Of whom? Of whom? repeated the trapper, who had sat regarding the stranger during the whole discourse, with eyes that seemed greedily to devour each liniment. How is the name? Did you call him Uncas? Uncas? Was it Uncas? Such is my name, returned the youth, a little haughtily. It is the appellation of a native chief, that both my uncle and myself bear with pride, for it is the memorial of an important service done my family by a warrior in the old wars of the provinces. Uncas? Did he call him Uncas? repeated the trapper, approaching the youth and parting the dark curls which clustered over his brow without the slightest resistance on the part of their wondering owner. Ah, my eyes are old, and not so keen as when I was a warrior myself. But I can see the look of the father and the son. I saw it when he first came nigh, but not so many things have since passed before my falling sight that I could not name the place where I had met his likeness. Tell me, lad, by what name is your father known? He was an officer of the States in the War of the Revolution. Of my own name, of course, my mother's brother was called Duncan Uncas Hayward. Still Uncas! Still, Uncas, echoed the other, trembling with eagerness. And his father? Was called the same, without the appellation of the native chief. It was to him and to my grandmother that the service of which I have just spoken was rendered. I knowed it, I knowed it, shouted the old man in his tremulous voice, his rigid features working powerfully, as if the names of the other mentioned awakened some long dormant emotions, connected with the events of an interior age. I knowed it. Son or grandson, it is all the same. It is the blood, and tis the look. Tell me, is he they call Duncan, without the Uncas, is he living? The young man shook his head sorrowfully, as if he replied in the negative. He died full of days and of honors, beloved, happy, and bestowing happiness. Full of days? repeated the trapper, looking down at his own meager but still muscular hands. Ah! He lived in the settlements, and was wise only after their fashions. But you have often seen him, and you have heard him discourse of Uncas, and of the wilderness. Often. He was then an officer of the king, but when the war took place between the crown and her colonies, my grandfather did not forget his birthplace, but threw off the empty allegiance of names, and was true to his proper country. He fought on the side of liberty. There was a reason in it, and what is better, there was nature. Come, sit ye down beside me, lad. Sit ye down, and tell me of what your grandfather used to speak when his mind dwelt on the wonders of the wilderness. The youth smiled, no less at the importunity than at the interest manifested by the old man. But as he found there was no longer the least appearance of any violence being contemplated, he unhesitatingly complied. Give it all to the trapper by rule and by figures of speech, said Paul, very coolly taking his seat on the other side of the young soldier. It is the fashion of old age to relish these ancient traditions, and for that matter I can say that I don't dislike to listen to them myself. Middleton smiled again, and perhaps with a slight air of derision, but good-naturedly turning to the trapper, he continued. It is a long and might prove a painful story. Bloodshed and all the horrors of Indian cruelty and of Indian warfare are fearfully mingled in the narrative. I give it all to a stranger, continued Paul. We are used to these matters in Kentuck, and I must say, I think a story none of the worse for having a few scalps in it. But he told you of Uncas, did he? Resumed the trapper, without regarding the slight interruptions of the bee-hunter, and which amounted to no more than a sort of by-play. 
And what thought he, and said he, of the lad in his parlour, with the comforts and ease of the settlements at his elbow? I doubt not he used a language similar to that he would have adopted in the woods, and had he stood face to face with his friend. Did he call the savage his friend, the poor naked painted warrior? He was not too proud then to call the Indian his friend. He even boasted of the connection, and as you have already heard, bestowed a name on his firstborn, which is likely to be handed down as an heirloom among the rest of his descendants. It was well done, like a man, I, and like a Christian, too. He used to say that Delaware was swift of foot. Did he remember that? As the antelope, indeed, he often spoke of him by the appellation of Le Cerf Agile, a name he had obtained by his activity. And bold and fearless lad, continued the trapper, looking up into the eyes of his companion, with a wistfulness that bespoke the delight he received in listening to the praises of one whom it was so very evident he had once tenderly loved. Brave as a blooded hound, without fear, he always quoted Uncas and his father, who from his wisdom was called the great serpent, as models of heroism and constancy. He did them justice, he did them justice. Truer men were not to be found in tribe or nation, be their skins of what color they might. I see your grandfather was just, and did his duty, too, by his offspring. T'was a perilous time he had of it, among them hills, and nobly did he play his own part. Tell me, lad, or officer, I should say, since officer you be, was this all? Certainly not. It was, as I have said, a fearful tale, full of moving incidents and memories both of my grandfather and of my grandmother. Ah! exclaimed the trapper, tossing a hand into the air, as his whole countenance lighted with the recollections the name revived. They called her Alice, Elise or Alice, tis all the same. A laughing, playful child she was, when happy and tender and weeping in her misery. Her hair was shining and yellow as the coat of the young fawn, and her skin clearer than the purest water that drips from the rock. Well do I remember her. I remember her right well." The lip of the youth slightly curled, and he regarded the old man with an expression which might easily have been construed into a declaration that such were not his own recollections of his venerable and revered ancestor, though it would seem he did not think it necessary to say as much in words. He was content to answer. They both retained impressions of the dangers they had passed, by far too vivid easily to lose the recollection of any of their fellow actors. The trapper looked aside, and seemed to struggle with some deeply innate feeling. Then, turning again towards his companion, though his honest eyes no longer dwelt with the same open interest as before, on the countenance of the other, he continued. Did he tell you of them all? Were they all redskins but himself and the daughters of Monroe? No. There was a white man associated with the Delawares, a scout of the English army, but a native of the provinces. A drunken, worthless vagabond like most of his color who harbor with the savages, I warrant you. Old man, your gray hairs should caution you against slander. The man I speak of was of great simplicity of mind, but of sterling worth. Unlike most of those who live a border life, he united the better instead of the worse qualities of the two people. He was a man endowed with the choicest and perhaps rarest gift of nature, that of distinguishing good from evil. His virtues were those of simplicity, because such were the fruits of his habits, as were indeed his very prejudices. In courage he was the equal of his red associates, in warlike skill being better instructed their superior. In short, 
he was a noble shoot from the stock of human nature, which never could attain its proper elevation and importance for no other reason than because it grew in the forest. Such, old hunter, were the very words of my grandfather when speaking of the man you imagined so worthless. The eyes of the trapper had sunk to the earth as the stranger delivered his character in the ardent tones of generous youth. He played with the ears of his hound, fingered his own rustic garment, and opened and shut the pan of his rifle, with hands that trembled in a manner that would have implied their total unfitness to wield the weapon. When the other had concluded, he hoarsely added, "'Your grandfather didn't then entirely forget the white man.' "'So far from that, there are already three among us, who have also names derived from that scout.' "'A name, did you say?' exclaimed the old man, starting. "'What, the name of the solitary, unlearned hunter, to the great and the rich and the honored, and what is better still? The just, do they bear his very actual name?' It is borne by my brother and by two of my cousins, whatever may be their titles, to be described by the terms you have mentioned. Do you mean the actual name itself, spelled with the very same letters beginning with an N and ending with an L? Exactly the same, the youth smilingly replied. No, no, we have forgotten nothing that was his. I have at this moment a dog brushing a deer, not far from this, who has come of a hound that very scout sent as a present after his friends, and which was of the stock he always used himself. A truer breed in those in foot is not to be found in the wide union. Hector, said the old man, struggling to conquer an emotion that nearly suffocated him, and speaking to his hound in the sort of tones he would have used to a child. Do you hear that, pup? Your can of blood are in the prairies. A name, it is wonderful, very wonderful. Nature could endure no more. Overcome by a flood of unusual and extraordinary sensations, and stimulated by tender and long-dormant recollections, strangely and unexpectedly revived, the old man had just self-command enough to add, in a voice that was hollow and unnatural, through the efforts he made to command it. Boy, I am that scout. A warrior once, a miserable trapper now. When the tears broke over his wasted cheeks, out of fountains that had long been dried, and, sinking his face between his knees, he covered it decently with his buckskin garment, and sobbed aloud. The spectacle produced correspondent emotions in his companions. Paul Hover had actually swallowed each syllable of the discourse, as they fell alternately from the different speakers, his feelings keeping equal pace with the increasing interest of the scene. Unused to such strange sensations, he was turning his face on every side of him to avoid he knew not what, until he saw the tears and heard the sobs of the old man, when he sprang to his feet and, grappling his guest fiercely by the throat, he demanded by what authority he had made his good companion weep. A flash of recollection crossing his brain at the same instant, he released his hold, and stretching forth an arm in the very wantonness of gratification, he seized the doctor by the hair, which instantly revealed its artificial formation by cleaving to his hand leaving the white and shining pall of the naturalist with a covering no warmer than the skin. "'What think you of that, Mr. Buggatherer?' he rather shouted than cried. "'Is not this a strange bee to line into his hole?' "'Tis remarkable, wonderful, edifying,' returned the lover of nature, good-humouredly recovering his wig, with twinkling eyes and a husky voice. "'Tis rare and commendable, though I doubt not in the exact order of causes and effects.' With this sudden outbreaking, however, 
the commotion instantly subsided. The three spectators clustering around the trapper with a species of awe, at beholding the tears of one so aged. It must be so, or how could he be so familiar with a history that is little known beyond my own family? At length the youth observed, not ashamed to acknowledge how much he had been affected by unequivocally drying his own eyes. True, echoed Paul. If you want any more evidence, I will swear to it. I know every word of it myself to be true as the gospel. And yet we had long supposed him dead, continued the soldier. My grandfather had filled his days with honor, and he had believed himself the junior of the two. It is not often that youth has the opportunity of thus looking down on the weakness of age, the trapper observed, raising his head and looking around him with composure and dignity. That I am still here, young man, is the pleasure of the Lord, who has spared me until I have seen fourscore long and laborious years for his own secret ends. That I am the man, I say, you need not doubt, for why should I go to my grave with so cheap a lie in my mouth? I do not hesitate to believe. I only marvel that it should be so. But why do I find you, venerable and excellent friend of my parents, in these wastes, so far from the comforts and safety of the lower country? I have come into these plains to escape the sound of the axe, for here surely the chopper can never follow, but I may put the like question to yourself. Are you of the party which the states have sent into their new purchase, to look after the nature of the bargain they have made? I am not. Lewis is making his way up the river, some hundreds of miles from this. I come on a private adventure. Though it is no cause of wonder that a man whose strength and eyes have failed him as a hunter should be seen nigh the haunts of the beaver, using a trap instead of a rifle, it is strange that one so young and prosperous, and bearing the commission of the great father, should be moving among the prairies without even a camp cowerman to do his biddings. You would think my reasons sufficient did you know them, as know them you shall if you are disposed to listen to my story. I think you all honest, and men who would rather aid than betray unbent unworthy object. Come, then, and tell us at your leisure, said the trapper, seating himself and beckoning to the youth to follow his example. The latter willingly complied, and after Paul and the doctor had disposed of themselves to their several likings, the newcomer entered into a narrative of the singular reasons which had led him so far into the deserts. End of chapter 10